Our first Bible reading is taken from Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of mighty waters and like the sound of, the, of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have, they have been redeemed from humankind as first fruits from God and the Lamb. And in their mouths was no lie. They are blameless. So picking up the reading again in verse 14 of chapter 14. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown, and in his hand, on his head, and, in, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So the one who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who was the, sorry, the angel who, who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swept, I think they've given this to me on purpose. Uh, so the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth and threw it into the grape winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as, as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of about 200 miles. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nigel, for doing uh, good justice to the tongue twister that is today's reading. He is tramping out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. There are two related issues that I want us to think about this morning, and they can be expressed as two questions. Firstly, the question of whether the reign of evil on the earth will ever end. And secondly, that of whether a life of suffering and faithful witness is ultimately worthwhile. And in these two uh, questions, are reflected two desires which I expect many of us can relate to. This is, on the one hand, the desire for the overthrow of evil, and on the other hand, the desire for mercy towards sinners. On the face of it, these two desires 
can seem to be mutually contradictory. After all, if God is to be merciful towards those who have sinned, how can he simultaneously punish them for their sinfulness? Has this contradiction ever occurred to you? Is God a God of mercy? Or is God a God of judgment? And can he be both? Well, we aren't the first people to have struggled with this theological conundrum. Uh, The uh, ancient Jews were very aware of it. And the book of Jonah is uh, in many ways an exploration of this tension between mercy and judgment. You will remember that uh, God is going to rain down judgment on the city of Nineveh. So he sends Jonah to tell them that he's going to rain down judgment because they're so evil. And Jonah goes there and tells them, I mean, he goes via a whale, but you know, he gets there and he tells them. And then they repent and they all wear sackcloth and ashes. And then even the animals wear sackcloth and ashes because they repent so utterly. And so God's merciful on them. And then you get that wonderful bit at the end where Jonah sits down under a tree and kind of crosses his arms and looks at God and goes, oh, how could you? That was so annoying because he wanted the judgment on evil and yet God is merciful and this tension is there. And it's this tension between mercy and judgment that John is exploring in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. If you have been part of our series so far, as we've been working our way over the last three months, occasionally getting Uh, up from Revelation 1 to 13, uh, you may be sharing with uh, John's original readers uh, a conviction that the empire of Rome is a satanic beast deceiving the nations of the earth. So much of John's imagery in Revelation is trying to help the people in his churches, which were uh, seven churches in Asia Minor at the kind of Western end, east and west model up, the western end of Turkey, trying to help them realize that the Roman Empire is not all good and all nice and all powerful and all lovely. It's actually all evil. It's a beast. It's a dragon. It's stamping all over the earth. So if, if John's first century readers have finally started to get this idea that the Roman Empire is a bad thing, despite all its propaganda to the contrary... As, as the scales are falling from their eyes as to the true beastly nature of the empire they were living under, the temptation would have been for them to then desire nothing less than its total destruction, along with all those who continued to be associated with it. And it's always tempting, isn't it, for those of us who long for a new world, for a, for a brighter better future to also long for the destruction of the systems of oppression that mar the world as we experience it. You know, I kind of sometimes want to look at the Houses of Parliament and just sort of echo Shakespeare and, you know, cry out a plague on both your houses. I could do so much better. Elect me. Let's, let's start the whole thing again. And, of course, I, 
I couldn't. But the temptation is to want to say, look, let's just do away with this evil thing and let's rise up and start a new, better, more just way of doing society. The temptation is always before those of us who long for a better world to seek the overthrow of the existing empire and long and work for its replacement with an empire of our own devising. And this might be a religiously motivated temptation. It certainly has been at various points in British history. Uh, it happened under Cromwell. The Baptists nearly took over running the country in the 17th century. There was just this little brief window of opportunity when the new model army had overthrown the king and they cut off the king's head and Cromwell was warm to the Protestants. And there was just this moment where we put together a parliament staffed mostly with Baptists and other dissenters. And of course it turned out that they were absolutely terrible at running the country and he had to dismiss it shortly afterwards and go back to using politicians. But it doesn't have to be a religiously motivated attempt to overthrow the world. There's never been any shortage of people offering an ideological panacea for human woes. Whether it's the Elysian fields of a no-deal Brexit or the utopia of greater European integration or the communitarian economics of socialism, or the self-correcting justice of the free market, or the paradise of a truly Christian country. The temptation to see one ideology as the solution to all of our problems is every bit as much before us in our world as it was before the first century Christians in Asia Minor. You can just hear them, can't you? They've had this vision that the Roman Empire is evil, that it's terrible. So down with the empire. Do away with Rome. Long live King Jesus. Vive la revolution of the kingdom of God. However, this attitude of pitting church against the world, where the world is bad and the church is good, can also lead at a more extreme end of the scale, to an attitude of isolationism. Because what happens is the church, in the absence of yet being able to take over the world, defines its role as that of keeping itself morally pure. The rest of the world can justifiably go to hell, as long as the church keeps itself pure. And we see this today as well in those forms of Christianity that emphasise moral and doctrinal purity, but which disengage from the world and don't get involved in action on justice and just in order to keep themselves holy. And it's in order to avoid both of these extremes, on the one hand, trying to aim for total revolution and taking over the world, and on the other hand, just going, blow the world, let that go to hell, as long as we keep ourselves pure, that's our task. It's in order to avoid both of these extremes of revolution and isolation that John wants those in his congregations in the seven churches of Asia Minor to understand the importance of their role as a light to all the nations. They're not the revolutionaries trying to overcome, overthrow Rome, but neither are they the isolationists trying to disengage. They are a light to all the nations. By John's understanding, the central task of the faithful church is that of bearing faithful witness, even if that means persecution and martyrdom. 
And this core task of bearing faithful witness to the world beyond cannot be set aside, either in the interests of isolationist purity, nor in the interests of violent revolution. And John achieves this difficult balancing act by holding together two images, one of judgment and one of mercy. So before describing the judgment of the satanic empire, John addresses the issue of God's mercy towards those caught up in the empire, towards the sinners of the world. And so he begins with an image of the church, depicted both in its heavenly and earthly manifestations. The church in heaven, the church universal, you know, the church on high, is depicted as 24 elders worshipping before God's throne. And then the church on earth, the church militant, is depicted as a great crowd numbering precisely 144,000. And John then hears the song that is being sung in heaven... And it turns out that on the earth, the only people who are able to learn that and sing it to the earth are the 144,000. So let's spend a few minutes now getting to grips with this really strange image of the church on earth as 144,000 male virgins. It's pretty weird, isn't it? I mean, apart from anything else, at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, there were nowhere near this number of Christians in the world. There's now considerably more than that. And if anybody has ever had a doorstep conversation with our friends from the Jehovah's Witnesses, you will probably have had a conversation about the 144,000 because they, they make a lot of this. Um, just going to revisit a point I've made in previous sermons. One of the complexities of Revelation is the huge number of characters involved. And my analogy for that is imagine a Greek play where you've got quite a lot of characters but considerably less actors. And so one actor might play seven or eight characters in the course of the play. This is what's going on in Revelation. So the church keeps playing several different characters. So the church is the 24 elders in heaven singing the song of heaven. But the church is also the people attending the congregations in Asia Minor. And they look like 144,000 people. We first met this strange number of 144,000 in chapter 7, and we looked at that a few weeks ago. And here they are coming into view again at the beginning of chapter 14. And here they appear as a mighty army. They're described as the army of the Lamb. The Lamb is one of the images for Jesus. And they're standing with Jesus on the mountain. And this is an image of the church on the earth sort of arrayed behind their lamb as a mighty army prepared for battle. This is one of the reasons, if you look at sort of uh, medieval armies, you often find, you know, if you imagine the army of the Crusades, that kind of thing, they've often got a standard at the front with a, with a kind of lamb on it. That's picking up the image that the lamb leads the army behind. And I think what's going on here is John is trying to offer his readers, heaven's perspective on their experience of themselves as members of small, struggling churches. The seven churches of the cities of Asia Minor were not wonderful buildings like this one. They were handfuls of people, you know, 20 people in each place, 
meeting in someone's courtyard or if the weather was too hot in someone's living room. They were house churches. Liz and I went to the seven churches of Asia Minor a few weeks ago. We, we drove around them all. We did over a 1,000 miles of driving in a, in a week to get around them all. And you go there now, and there are occasionally remains of churches to see. But those are churches from the second century and the third century. In the first century, this was just a handful of people. These were house groups more than churches. They did not see themselves as a mighty army of 144,000 people setting themselves out for battle, ready to do battle with the sin and evil in the world. They saw themselves as a handful of people who could get wiped out at a moment's notice if the wrong soldier came banging at the door. And John is wanting to help them see themselves differently. From a heaven's perspective, they're far more significant than they appear to be from their perspective. They might experience their present circumstances as a time of failure and difficulty, with small numbers of believers struggling to remain faithful to their Lord in the face of overwhelming opposition from the empire of Rome. But in John's vision... The church are a great force on the brink of victory over the very forces of evil that would seek to crush them. And the sound of heavenly worship is heard echoing over the battlefield that John describes with the 144,000, the church on the earth, the only people who are able to learn this song of heaven. Now the worship offered in the seven churches may not always have resounded with the echo of divine harpists. But from heaven's perspective, the worship of the church, the faithful naming in song of Jesus as Lord, in place of all other claims to power and authority, is the only way in which the world gets to hear the joyful song of the victory of good over evil. And I think there's a message for us here. Our worship at Bloomsbury can sometimes seem heavenly, particularly from my point of view when Philip literally pulls out all the stops on the Bloomsbury Beast, as that's what we call the organ, by the way, as we sing one of the great hymns of the faith. But even when it isn't, even when it's one of those Sundays when everybody's gone away altogether and there aren't so many of us and we don't know or like the song that the minister has chosen, even when we mumble our way through or disengage or think it's too fast or too slow, we are still naming Jesus as Lord. We're still proclaiming that all other powers are not Lord. And so, from the perspective of heaven, this proclamation is never lost. Rather, our feeble sometimes attempts to name Jesus as Lord are caught up into the eternal song of which we are also echoing. And this is the song that the church sings in all places and in all times and in all languages as the accompaniment to the ultimate defeat of evil and the final victory of good. So what is this song that the 24 elders are singing in heaven which echoes down to the earth and the 144,000 representing the church on earth are able to sing? I think it's revealed by the fact that the 144,000 are described twice as the redeemed in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 14. The church on earth are those whose salvation has been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, to use the old phrase. 
Humans rescued from the power of sin and death by the redeeming death of Jesus. Interestingly, the only other occurrence of this word redeemed in Revelation is found in the context of another new song, which appears in chapter 5. And it's the song again sung by the 24 elders. And the praise is again directed to the Lamb who has ransomed saints for God. This word redeemed, have you ever been to a pawn shop where you've, you know, pawned a ring or something for a bit of money and then you've had to go and... No, not me, but I know it's a thing. You trade in something of value and it needs to be redeemed, and you come back with the money, and you hand over the money, and you get the thing of value back. That's what redemption is. The church are those who are redeemed, and the song is the song sung by those who have been redeemed by the price paid by Jesus. And only the church, it seems, can sing of the victory won by Jesus on the cross. The only way in which the good news of Jesus redeeming people from their sin and from death. The only way that can be made known on the earth is when the followers of the Lamb, be it a church full or 20 people in someone's living room or whatever, the only way the good news of Jesus can be known on the earth is when the followers of the Lamb join their voices with the song that is already being sung in heaven to proclaim to the world that Jesus saves people from sin and death because without that people will never know that the path to new life is found in Jesus that it has been opened for all by the death of Jesus on the cross my goodness isn't Simon sounding like an old-fashioned preacher for once he's talking about the death of Jesus and the fact that Jesus saves I truly believe this and it is our job to tell the world The church of the redeemed on the earth, symbolized by the 144,000, is then described in the next verse, verse 4, as being the first fruits. This recalls the Jewish practice of taking the first fruits of your harvest, you know, the first sheaf of grain that you cut from the field, and offering it as an offering before God as an indication that the greater harvest that you're about to gather also belongs to God. So it's interesting, isn't it, that the church on the earth is described as the first fruits of a great harvest. This gives us an image of the church, the 144,000, taking this path of sacrifice, of suffering, sometimes of martyrdom, enduring through tribulation, not for their own salvation and benefit. We are not redeemed for our own benefit. This is not about me, and it's not about you. It's about something much bigger than this. The church on the earth is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, rescued from sin and death, for the greater benefit of all those who will follow. The church on the earth is just the first fruits of a far greater harvest which is still to come. I'll come back to that in a moment. But first, let's have a slightly, uh, slight diversion. Let's talk about sex. There's this very strange description of the 144,000 as, and I quote, those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. 
This is a problematic statement at quite a number of levels, if you don't mind me saying so. I'm not going to do a feminist critique of this now, but I want to note that there is a very important feminist critique to make of this in terms of what this is saying about the role of women in sex and temptation and going all the way back to Eve in the Garden of Eden. We just need to note that this is representative of a fairly male-dominated culture and set of assumptions. But to try and enter into what John's doing with this image for a moment, even though we recognise it's problematic. It seems to exclude women from the Church of the Redeemed, because they're, they're all men. It also has led in Christian history to an idealisation of male celibacy as a characteristic of holiness. It's this verse, amongst others, that leads to the requirement, for example, for Catholic priests to remain celibate if they're going to be priests. To understand John's use of this image, we need to understand both his Jewish background and the theological point he's trying to make here. He's wanting to try and paint an image perhaps less successfully than some of his other images, if I'm honest, but he's trying to portray an image of the church as priests before God. And if you go back into the book of Leviticus, you find that in Leviticus, the act of sexual intercourse was regarded as rendering both partners ritually unclean for the next day. This meant that Jewish priests who could be married were required to abstain from sexual relations before entering a period of priestly service in the temple. And in John's image, he's trying to portray the church as ritually pure, not just through a temporary abstinence from behavior that might defile them, but pure in an eternal and absolute sense, as befits his later image of the church as the bride of the Lamb. So his point is that the church, the first fruits, can be the priests of the whole earth, the greater harvest. Because the church is pure, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, dressed in white robes indicative of purity, because the church is declared pure because of what Jesus does for them, they can act as priests for the great harvest of the rest of the earth. The church on the earth, the 144,000, are not just the first fruits of the great harvest, they are the priests of the whole earth, singing the song of heaven to the earth, enabling all those beyond the church to draw near to God. With regard to the male virginity side of the image, it's also likely that John has in mind here the Jewish practice that we meet in 1 Samuel 21 of soldiers making sure they were ritually clean before a battle. Intriguingly, I have discovered this tradition of celibacy before a battle is still current in the UK. A BBC survey reports that, quote, more than a third of male football fans abstain from sex the night before their team has a big match. Who knew? Those of you with long memories may remember Bertie Voigt, the German football manager in 1994. He famously banned his players from seeing their wives and girlfriends on the night before a match. So this image of the 144,000 of the church as the army of the Lamb is an image of the church ritually pure, ready to fight, match ready, so to speak. 
But it is a very problematic image, and I kind of wish John hadn't used it. But it's there, and it's worth understanding it. The purity of the church is emphasized even more by a statement in the next verse. This is that in their mouth no lie was found, they are blameless. This is a reference to the suffering servant passage from Isaiah, who is like a lamb led to the slaughter. That's Isaiah 53. Early Christians came to understand this as referring to Jesus. And in Isaiah, the suffering servant is declared innocent after his death with the phrase, there is no deceit in his mouth. And John quotes that of the church. In their mouth, no lie is found. They're blameless. So in John's theological scheme in Revelation, the innocence of the slain lamb, Jesus, is passed on to those who are redeemed by his shed blood. We are made pure because Jesus is pure. His innocence is imputed to us, to quote Paul. The purity of the suffering servant becomes the purity of his servants who endure through suffering. Well, the 144,000 will pop up a couple more times in Revelation as another image of the church, blazing a trail to heaven as the nations of the earth follow on. They appear in chapter 15, where once again they're singing, and they're singing the song of the Israelites standing beside the Red Sea coming out of slavery in Egypt. The song offered in chapter 15 by the 144,000 is described by John as the song of Moses and the Lamb making it clear that he sees the church as the forefront of a new exodus. They have passed through the waters of baptism rather than the Red Sea. They are no longer under the tyranny of the beast, whether it's Egypt, Rome, or Satan, and they're embarking on their journey towards promised land, the new Jerusalem, led in that journey and in song, not by Moses, but by the Lamb. The 144,000 then appear again, in, briefly in chapter 19, again is the army of heaven, assembled behind the rider on the white horse as the army at the final battle of Armageddon, still dressed in their white linen clothes. It's weird, isn't it? This kind of idea of the blood of the lamb washes whiter than white. It sounds like some kind of soap advert. The beast and the kings of the earth gather to make war on the rider and his army, and the army of heaven gather for battle but end up not fighting because the fight against the forces of evil in the world is already over as the beast is defeated by the rider on the white horse from the truth of the gospel that comes from his mouth. Those who have conquered are victorious not by fighting in the end but by faithfully witnessing. So all of this is buzzing around for John. It's all there in his imagery and I get that there's a lot of it. What John is trying to do here is emphasize the inherent difference between those in the church who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, purified, taught the song of good news that in Christ release is found from sin and death, and those beyond the church who are still ensnared and embroiled in Babylon, in Rome, in the world. And the vital function of the church is that amongst all the inhabitants of the earth, only the church can sing the song of good news to the world. And this is a picture of the witnessing church, and the message is clear. If the church fails to sing the song of heaven, then the song remains in heaven. However, if the church picks up the heavenly refrain, then the glory of heaven is brought to the earth. 
And so, as we've seen before in Revelation, worship is both a spiritual and a political activity. Proclaiming the kingdom of Christ on the earth in place of the idolatrous claims of empire, drawing the nations of the earth from Babylon to New Jerusalem, draws us into politics because we are involved in the transformation of the world and the transformation of people. This is not an isolationist manifesto, but neither is it a manifesto for violent revolution. The army of the Lamb does not win by taking up weapons and defeating the beast in the end. It wins by faithfully proclaiming the gospel. An angelic messenger then confirms this perspective, echoing the witness of the church, proclaiming an eternal gospel to every nation, tribe and language and people, calling all people to repent and give glory to God. That's verses 6 and 7 of chapter 14. Are you getting it? How do they know? We tell them. How will they know if they have never heard? And John then sets before his audience these two harvest images which we've been building up to. The harvest of the grain and the harvest of the grape. The Old Testament background for these images is found in two harvests referred to in the book of Joel. Joel 3 says, Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The grain harvest, as John presents it, is a positive image, representing the ingathering of the entire earth. In this image is found the end goal of the faithful witnessing of the people of God. So as the faithful church witnesses to the world... The first fruits become the great harvest. The whole earth is reaped, safely gathered in. All peoples in every nation, tribe and tongue, are harvested by Jesus himself. This is a positive, universal image of salvation. Just as in chapter 7, the 144,000 became a great multitude no one could count, so in chapter 14, the first fruits become the great harvest. And here we get to see what the great harvest looks like. And it looks like a farmer gathering in all the grain from his field. There may be an echo here of the parable Jesus told about wheat and weeds growing together and being harvested together before the weeds are cast into the fire to be burned. But that parable is about the weeds and the wheat that grow together in a person's life. You know, my life is both weed and wheat. And... It indicates God's mercy in freeing us from sin and evil by casting them into the fire, leaving the good fruit that remains to be gathered into heaven. So that Jesus' parable is more about an individual life. The harvest image in Revelation is much more universal and less individual in scope. It depicts the harvesting of the whole earth. It makes no mention of either weeds or fire. What John is showing here is that the faithful witness of the church results in the salvation of all the nations of the earth. And in this, of course, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. Do you remember God made a covenant with Abraham that through Abraham's children, all nations would be blessed? That's in the background for John here. Because Abraham's children, 
The people of God are the church. Through the church, all nations are blessed. God's promise to Abraham is finally fulfilled as every nation is saved. Gosh, isn't Simon sounding like a universalist and less like an old-fashioned preacher? Yes, that's true. I am. So to return to one of John's key questions, is it worth persevering in witnessing even through difficulty and persecution? Very real question if you live in the first century in Asia Minor. Yes, says John, it is. The people of God participate in Christ's victory by bearing witness, as Jesus did, as far as death. And in this way, they bear witness to all nations and bring them all to repentance and faith in God. However, this this is lovely, isn't it? Everybody wins, everybody gets saved. The great harvest it's set against, immediately against, a much more negative counterpart in the form of the image of the grape harvest. And in the image of the grape harvest, not the grain harvest, John addresses his other question, which is the desire for judgment against evil in the world. The grapes are harvested by an angel. The grain was harvested by Jesus, but the grapes are harvested by an angel and they're placed in a wine press and then they're trampled by Jesus. And the wine that flows from the press is identified as blood. And John says it flows through the city as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. That is a lot of blood. And the grape harvest represents the uncompromising judgment of God on the beast, on all of his powers and structures, all of the systems of beastly, satanic evil that existed in the world at the time of John and ever since the creation of the world up to the present day. God is not having that in eternity. So there is an assurance here to John's readers that the satanic empire in all of its forms, be that Egypt of old or Babylon of old or Rome of his day or all of the instances since, the satanic empire must eventually face the consequences of its actions. And the blood that flows from the winepress represents the very real and bloody human consequences of humanity's infatuation with the beast of empire. Now hear this very clearly. This is not a picture of God doing violence to humans. This is not a picture of God doing violence to humans. It's a picture of God's judgment on the violence that humans do to one another. An insight from the world of liberation theology can help us here. Namely, that the images of judgment in Revelation are only truly problematic when they are read from the perspective of the wealthy oppressor. Within John's symbolic world, it is powerful Babylon and those who buy into the ideologies of empire who are on the receiving end of judgment, which is understood as God's righteous wrath against evil oppression and injustice. So when read from the perspective of collaboration with empire, the judgments of revelation might be heard as the vindictive vengeance of a wrathful God. 
But when viewed from the perspective of the poor and the oppressed, the victims of the satanic empire, this situation is totally reversed. No longer are the judgments threatening, they're liberating. From this perspective, from the perspective of those underneath, the prayer, your kingdom come, becomes the how long cry of the martyrs. It's a prayer for release, for justice, for judgment. Brian McLaren says, God's wrath is God's justice in action, and only the oppressors fear God's justice. So when we come to this passage today, we might want to pay attention to the reactions it stirs in us. Are our hearts gladdened that God's mercy embraces all? Or are we resentful that others will benefit from our faithfulness and our suffering? Are we fearful of God's judgment on the systems of the world? Or do we welcome it? For whom would we desire mercy? And for whom do we desire judgment? These are deep questions and there are no easy answers. But a reading of Revelation might suggest that God's mercy is universal in scope, that his judgment is never against individuals and always against those satanic systems of the world that stop people's ears to the new song of heaven that the people of Christ faithfully sing. Which means that in our case, our task is to sing that song of heaven to the world, even if it costs us our lives, as it does for many Christians around the world. Because it is the sacrifice of the first fruits that leads to the ingathering of the great harvest. This is the good news of the great judgment of God. And let us come before God in prayer. Great God of generosity and grace, we come now to pray for our world, to which you have called us, and for which you have given yourself. We pray for the stony ground of our world, for those places where it is hard to live and difficult for any good to survive. So we think of those who live year on year with failed harvests, for those who do not find on the earth the good news of fertile ground, and abundant harvests. We think of those who eke out a subsistence only to have it taken from them by the powerful people who already have more than enough, but still want more. We think of those whose farmland is no longer their own, who now still till as tenants, growing crops they will never eat, and for which they will not receive fair recompense. We think of those who walk on the concrete ground of our towns and cities, unsure where their next meal will come from. And so we pray, great God of generosity and grace, for a just and equal sharing of resources in this world. Challenge us. Challenge us to speak out against injustice. Challenge us to give generously of ourselves and of our means. Challenge us to live sustainably and responsibly, recognizing the blessings of abundance that we have here. We think of the international policies of the IMF and the World Bank to our local food bank. We ask you to take care 
of our charities and our churches and to challenge those that have power. Teach us how to model you and so others will see you through us. Teach us to speak out the good news and be communities of grace and generosity. Great God of generosity and grace, we pray for the ground of our world where the thorns and weeds grow and choke and stifle the seeds of hope and good news. We think of those whose lives are determined by war, fear, and oppressive ideologies. We think of young people who grow up knowing that they hate others because all they have experienced from others is acts of hatred towards them. We recognize the destructive, unending spirals of violence and retribution, where good news is subsumed beneath systems of protectionism and hatred. And so we pray, great God of generosity and grace, for all those who are trapped in those systems. We long for seeds of common humanity planted deep within the soul of each person. We pray that they will find space and take root and grow, that the world may be transformed, hearts and minds changed from within. <laughs> we think of those this morning who live in violence in this city, <coughs> who are afraid to speak out, to ask for justice, to ask for mercy. Give us eyes to see them. Eyes to see those in this world who are trapped. And give us eyes to see our own violence. We pray for all of us who are amidst the thorns and have thorns within us to help us clear our ground for good news to take root. We pray for ourselves, for the fertile grounds in our own hearts and minds. We ask that in our lives, by our words and through our deeds, your kingdom will grow. We commit ourselves once again to calling, to that calling that rests on each of us to be agents of good news, activists of transformation, and faithful witnesses to the one who has called us, to Jesus Christ, who gave his life for our forgiveness and freedom. And so we pray, great God of generosity and grace, that we may reflect in our life and our lives together the gracious generosity of your kingdom. As we share our resources and hold lightly to which we call our own, we offer back to you all that we have and all that we are. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. <laughs>